Hi, I'm Tom Woods, and you're listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the statist quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I am your host, Doug Stewart, and I am excited to have a conversation with somebody today who is a special guest. I've been wanting to have him on for quite a while, and we arranged to, actually, we arranged two uh, interviews, and this one's going to be about Jesus Politics, which is the series that he has done on his own podcast, and then he's got a book coming out, which we'll get to in a few months. So I've actually booked this guy twice before we even recorded the first one. This is great. But <laughs> the guest that I'm talking about here is Kurt Willems, who is a guy who thinks theologically about politics very similar to my own. And I wanted to have a really fruitful dialogue and to talk about those areas of agreement and maybe even talk about those areas of disagreement because we don't always align. So let me tell you who Kurt Willems is. He's a pastor, church planner, writer, and the host of the Theology Curator podcast. He has an MDiv degree from Fresno Pacific Biblical Seminary and an MA in Comparative Religion from the University of Washington. He and his wife, Lauren, they have two daughters and they reside in Seattle, Washington. Kurt, thanks for joining us. Hey, what a pleasure. And what an intro. Hey, this is, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm super excited. So yeah, glad to do it. Yeah, well, I've been, you know, listening to your podcast for a while. And uh, I don't know if you wouldn't remember this because you were the one serving a crowd, but you actually served me and my wife communion at this church in Carlisle when we we were in attendance and like Greg Boyd and Brian Zond and Brooksy Cavey, uh, I forget his name, last name. Uh, Bruxy is what I was I know him as. Um, and you were the person who like we got, we were in your line because we were in your like side of the, of the auditorium and like you served me communion at one point in the past. So we have a, we've actually met in person very briefly. <laughs> wow. Well, yeah. So that must've been, I'm trying to remember that would have been the Missio Alliance and yes. baptism thing. Yeah. 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 yeah that's yeah. uh that was really, man, that was, was a while 2014, ago. I think. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, that's, yeah, that was a lot of fun. I got to say some words there and hand people some communion there. So that's uh, cool. Yeah. Yeah, it was, it was really cool. So, you know, I see you and follow you and love your podcast and how, you know, solid your theological musings and teachings are. And you have shared your faith journey over the years on your podcast. And it's very similar to my own in a, in a number mm. of ways. And I have gone from sort of pretty like conservative Baptist. And now I would, I mean, it's kind of hard to describe because I'm like, well, I'm kind of Anabaptist. I'm kind of like Tom Wright Episcopal in some ways. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. I admire these other things. And so you and I overlap a lot. So, but we're going to talk politics a little bit today, which is good because you just, I don't know. Did you finish your Jesus Politics series? Almost. I'm, I'm supposed okay. to do one on the millennium. And oh, okay. I just, man, I, I have it all. Do you ever have like all of the right resources available to you? But when you go to like prepare something, it's just like exhausting to try and put it together. Oh, yes. This is one of those. I, I, uh, yeah. So eventually I'm going to do, because I, I ended that series or I'm ending that series with uh, a few, a few talks just on revelation and politics. And um, the last one is about millennialism, where I plan to actually, oddly enough, critique things like the social gospel, which uh, maybe there's overlap there. But um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. 
yeah. there's always something to critique about everything. So that, that's part mm-hmm. of the prophetic mm-hmm. voice, I think, is that we yeah. are always self-assessing and self-critical and, you know, intracritical if you're Christian. Oh, yeah. So give me a little bit, so for our listeners, because they may not know you, I'm sure some of them might, give a little bit of your faith journey and then kind of how you started your your podcast. Oh, that's thanks for the invitation and grateful to be able to share with whoever's listening. My journey is unique to me, but probably in some ways not unique to everyone. There's overlap probably with your story and with a lot of stories. But I grew up in a uh, evangelical context, not as fundamentalist conservative, like as some people that I've gotten to know over the years who are really recovering from something that's really rigid and um, I'd say oppressive in many ways. Um, Mine was actually not a terrible, like when I think about my church growing up, I think, oh yeah, I disagree with them a lot. And I've had to outgrow some of the ideas, but I'm not like mad at them or anything, you know, where where there's a lot of people that really have a lot heavier burdens because of their upbringing. And I want to honor that. But I did grow up in that environment. I, I got to know Jesus really early. I also had a parallel part of my life where my mom and dad divorced very, very early in my life and lived with mom, single parent, And, you know, this ties into probably some of my uh, understanding of politics. We were on welfare. We paid for grocery with food stamps. I mean, it was a a very hard time during those early formative years. In fact, there was abuse in the home when an almost stepfather came into the picture. I, I talk a lot about this in my book, by the way, which we'll talk about next time. But but those are all kind of dynamics that really shape my story. And so I end up by the time I'm in sixth grade, getting ready to transition to a private Christian school. And during seventh, eighth grade, ninth grade, I'm really trying to find myself, like pick up the pieces. I've been in church this whole time, but I'm also recovering in a lot of way from an abusive childhood that has finally, the abuse part had come to an end. And eventually find Jesus in a renewed way in high school. And during that transition, that was the summer after my sophomore year of high school, I had a powerful just moment with God where I felt called to ministry at a summer camp. And my life trajectory has never been the same since. Uh, And so that was really the start. And all of that is within a very, you know, your average conservative evangelical environment. Um, It was a Mennonite church I was reared in, but we weren't very Mennonite. So... (laughs) (laughs) Um, I I would be considered ethnically Mennonite. And I use air quotes that you can't see right now to describe that. And over the years, I went through a phase in college where I discovered that historical context and the scriptures come together in crazy illuminating ways. And I became captivated by trying to understand the Bible on its own terms in its historical context, especially the first century world, And that kind of unraveled this whole chain of events that led me to really um, go all in during my Master of Divinity program. And I I explored every topic you can think of, for me at least, like open theism, nonviolence, um, nationalism, evolution. You know, I I really tried to make that season of my life in my mid-20s a season where I could explore a lot of these Mm -hmm. theological ideas. And then 
when I came to the University of Washington as a church planter, uh, I had a little bit of freedom to also go to school. That was a time where I really wanted to dive deep into some something specific. So I ended up studying Paul within the Roman world and specifically Romans 13. And I haven't publicly said where I come out on Romans 13 in a very, in the specific, specific sense. Yeah. Um, but I can give generalities around that because I may write a PhD someday around it. So that's uh, the only reason okay. I have it. But all of that to say, that's uh, little glimpses of my story. I eventually, you know, back going backwards a little bit during seminary, kind of gave into the Anabaptist thing that, as a child, I kind of thought was silly, to be honest with you. The nonviolence thing and the community thing, they just drew me in. And so for about 10 or 11 years now, I would say that I've considered myself a pacifist. I've considered myself someone who's really committed to discipleship and, you know, what does it look like to follow Jesus through the lens of the Sermon on the Mount, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what else I'd add to that is uh, I too share some of those other threads. Um, N.T. Wright's work has been super influential and the work of many others. So I'm an Anabaptist plus, I kind of say. I'm honestly not even too worried about a church's view of baptism. And I guess it makes me a bad Anabaptist. But (laughs) at the end of the day, I want to be part of something that is stepping into the the kingdom of God, both in its personal formative ways and also its um, social ways. And so um, that's been and a little bit of a sketch of where I'm coming from and what yeah, I've been yeah. up to. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and one of those ways in which you minister to people is through your podcast. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So now maybe I'm wrong about this. Did you do a second podcast or did you rebrand the original? Yeah. Podcast? So it, it, it certainly could be confusing. So there's a couple of things I've done. So I started with a, a podcast called The Paul Cast. And I spent the first three or so years only talking about things at least related to Paul and Pauline studies, whether they were pastoral or academic, a lot of it was academic. And that really got me, got some really good momentum and people really love that. But I'm also a pastor. And so I realized that I kept stretching my topics to be able to include other things and ultimately decided, you know what, I can still talk about Paul in these ways, but I also want to talk about Jesus. I want to talk about you know, when cool books come out, I want to be able to interview authors if that's something yeah. I'm into at the time. You know, so I I broadened the platform. Adjacent to that, I started a podcast that eventually I decided was going to just be a short-term podcast called Rapture Drill, where I did a series of episodes just kind of unpacking Revelation and really talking about those things. Um, if I were omnipresent or I don't know what what omni I need, I would probably <laughs> keep going on both podcasts. I just don't have time. And yeah. so I've kind of let Theology Curator be the thing. There's a piece of paper on my desk. Okay, not literally a piece of paper on my desk, but there could be a piece of paper on my desk of all the spinoff podcasts from this one that I would want to do. Mm-hmm, but of course, mm-hmm. you know, I'm not omni broadcast. I don't know. Yeah, there it is. <laughs> <laughs> Something like that. 
Um, so one of the reasons that actually we wanted to have you on was that you've recently done the Jesus Politics series within your Theology Curator podcast. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. that is has been really, I, I've just started the Revelation section, so I haven't actually finished the series yet. But I love how you have this like segment of teaching and then you talk with somebody. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. it it makes me jealous because I want to have someone like you to talk to. So I'm going to cherish <laughs> this time that we have. <laughs> Uh, because, uh, yeah, I mean, I, we don't probably agree on everything. And so that it would just totally fine, but there's so much, I'm like, oh, I want to know, I want to know what Kurt thinks about this, or I want to know why he yeah. said it that way or, or whatever. Yeah. And I don't, I don't have all those things written down, but I want to recap for my listeners because it's been a while since I've shared my story. And just so that you kind of know roughly where I'm coming from, I'm yeah, absolutely. probably in just a minute or two, I was very similar to you in my 20s. I was, and I'm only a few years older than you, was interested in a fresher version of the faith that I had. Like I was never questioning. I never had the, you know, I was never really bitter at the hyper-conservative upbringing. Mm -hmm. I didn't have any trauma in my life or anything like that. But I was just kind of like my faith needed to be kind of renewed in a certain way. And it in part came across through people like N.T. Wright, reading some of the uh, books like Surprised by Hope was a major turning point for me. Mm -hmm. My wife and I listened to the, now this is actually, yeah, no, this this, is about right in the same storyline here. We listened on our our drive to our honeymoon destination, we listened to Greg Boyd's sermons on the myth of cross and a sword, which became myth of a Christian nation. Like that's what we listened to. That was how geeky I was back then. And so those kinds of things were very uh, pivotal for me. And I started kind of swinging what most people kind of call left-leaning. And when it came to the social issues, it was like, mm, something doesn't feel right. And I'm like, there's got to be some sort of like extra theological study that I need to kind of learn or to kind of understand whether it's sociology or anthropology or in, and what really happened was I kind of started studying economics because I was kind of like, well, okay, if we're going to redistribute wealth or if we're going to have this sort of tax policy or raise the minimum wage or what these things, these are economic questions. Yeah. And so I started looking into that a bit and that led me to really where I am today. But it was, what was eye-opening for me was that while I was in seminary, I was becoming more and more interested. And, and I say this sort of embarrassingly, a little bit interested in the plight of the poor from a more like broad global systems, not personal, like, hey, how are the poor people doing, you know, five miles away from me? But like, how can we as a society sort of solve the problem of poverty or something like that, right? It was more Mm -hmm. of a higher level type of thing. And so my concern for the poor was a little bit non-personal, more statistical. And one of the things that I learned while sort of having that burden of like, wow, Christians really need to think about what goes on in this world as well as our like sort of inner spiritual world. And on, on the other hand, I was like, holy cow, the government really oppresses people on the margins through mm. things like criminal justice that, that you know, we're now seeing, this is over 10 years ago now, we're now seeing more criminal justice reform being kind of accepted. Yeah. You have people on the right, people libertarians, people who like all aligning to like, yeah, our prison system is all screwed up. And other things like the Federal Reserve, how it privileges the ultra wealthy at the expense of people who are poor and who are, who are truly poor. So those kind of things converged for me and I ended up a lot more in favor of free markets than I think you might be And so we probably are handling our approaches to politics just a little bit differently because you might say, here's a problem and this is why I vote this way. And I might say, here's a problem and here's why I 
don't vote in that race or whatever. Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. that's probably, I hope that sets the stage for you in terms of like kind of where I'm coming from. I would yeah. say if we dropped politics off the table, you and I probably have way more agreement than than uh, <laughs> than we do in politics. So absolutely, uh, yeah. so yeah, that's cool. Yeah, yeah. No, it, it's interesting. I just <laughs> to cut you off. I guess it feels very podcast hostish. Sorry, I'm not hosting your show. Oh no, you're good. Um, <laughs> I told you but, you're allowed to do this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, I I'm holding your book in my hand, Faith Seeking Freedom, and I read I read the whole thing and. I mean, I, we'll get into it, but it's like, dude, there's so much in here that I'm just like, right on. I agree. I, I mean, yeah. probably the Bible stuff, especially, yeah. but even some of the principles and motivations behind what we'll talk about. I'm like, mm -hmm. yeah, there, there are some space. And, and I'll, I'll go this far to set the table too for, from my end to say, I prefer this vision, your version of libertarianism much more to the Trumpism I'm seeing and some of the, yeah, the muddy waters of the kind of conservatism that doesn't feel that conservative in the right way yeah, anymore. Right. And so, yeah. so there is, I think, quite a bit of overlap. So yeah, this is, this is fun. All right, cool. So when you talk about politics, my guess is that you are more specifically using that word as like electoral politics rather than the broader definition of politics. Do you know what I mean by that? I do. Yeah. No. Yeah. I'm, I'm very practical when it comes to politics, partially because I, I'm not political theory, not a zone that I uh, have lived mm -hmm. in very much. And so the truth be told, I, I'm coming into this with a lot less uh, tools in my belt, so to speak. And so for me, yeah, when I'm saying politics generally, I'm thinking of my context. Yeah. 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 Okay. So you've probably seen that meme where it has the, the husband at the computer telling his wife he's going to be late to bed because someone's wrong on the internet. <laughs> yeah. Okay. That's awesome. So yeah. there's something that kind of gets me into that mode, and I'm pretty sure it might get you into that mode, is when you hear someone say Jesus wasn't political. Uh-huh. Yep. So yep. I want to hear from you, like, why was Jesus not apolitical? Yeah. I know, yeah. I used a double negative on purpose. No, I love it. I love it. Yeah, and you know, it's interesting because everything Jesus does involves human beings or himself, right? So, so you know, Jesus is thoroughly political, but he's political in a different way. You know, he's not part of a system per se. Like he's not trying to play the politics of popularity, He's not trying to become elected to this or that position within the Israelite people. You know, he's, right. he's um, yeah. So in one sense- Well, he didn't he, side with the factions of like the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Yeah, like, no, those were I kind mean, of the parties. He, he's probably, I mean, historically speaking, he's closest to Phariseeism. I know that sounds really weird to say. Like he's probably pretty close to Pharisees when it comes to like overall worldview, but he saw the holes in their worldview and he rightfully and justly exploited those holes and said, this is hypocritical on, on various levels. And yeah. so, and what I mean by he's kind of a Pharisee, I mean, I think his vision of Judaism, his view of resurrection, obviously is a very Pharisee sort of thing. So, so there's a lot of ways he's a Pharisee, but but he doesn't join the Pharisees. He's an outsider and he he's able to speak truth and also model truth, you know? And I think that's one of the things we see in Jesus, that Jesus is someone who will speak truth to any system of power. And Jesus will say, so let's model something better. Let's model a different way mm -hmm. of organizing our lives together. So 
the Sermon on the Mount is extremely political, not political like in the local sense of, you know, policymaking, but in the lifestyle sense that we're figuring out what it means to be a politic together, a, a people together. So Jesus invites us into some radical practices in doing that. I mean, the Sermon on the Mount is radical. And I would agree with you, as I understand in the book and kind of just overall my conversations with other Christian libertarians, I don't think Jesus is setting an agenda for the nations of the world in the Sermon on the Mount. He's saying, who cares what the nations do? Let's be us. Let's be Mm, this kind of people. So, you know, but that's political. That's a choice to create something better, you know? And I think that is uh, at the heart of Jesus in a lot of ways. You know, it's interesting how you, that you answered it that way because as I'm assessing why I would answer it, which I'm about to, it's like there was this missing piece when I was growing up. And I, I'm still just, I sort of say this tongue in cheek, I'm a little bitter that I wasn't told growing up that during Jesus' day, there were other revolutionaries claiming to be the Messiah. Um, and I'm yeah. like, really? You didn't tell me this? Like, I, know. I grew up in, I went to Bible college. I didn't learn mm-hmm. this till like, I don't even know if I learned it in seminary. I probably did. Um, or they probably mentioned that maybe that's like kind of around when I learned it. So I don't remember if I learned yeah. it from seminary or NT <laughs> Yeah, yeah. But what was missing was that whole sense of like, what would the people who heard this first already know about what is being said? That's right. And so something like Jesus is Lord. Okay, great. That's a great personal statement. It comes from the Old Testament scriptures. But when you think about it in the context of the first century, it also has very, very specifically political anti-Caesar, anti-Empire uh-huh. statement, right? So like Jesus Absolutely. is Lord. Like I didn't know that Caesar declared himself Lord or and the son of God. And it's like, oh, like the Bible is like a two for one here. It's like, hey, we're mm-hmm. going to quote the Old Testament and fulfill the Old Testament, but we're also going to subvert Rome. And yeah. we're also going to subvert the empire. And the kinds of things that like make it very clear to me that Jesus was political is that like God chose to become incarnate in flesh at a time where a major empire was declaring peace through war or mm-hmm. peace through conquest. And that was when God came to earth, <laughs> right? And yeah. it was very different, it was the opposite of that. You know, rode in on a donkey, not a war horse. Mm-hmm. And so those are the kinds of things that like, when I was like, oh, Jesus, he was political. His his whole life was, it was contra Caesar. Yeah. Uh, so, uh-huh. so Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and and we don't take that seriously enough. I think, um, you know, the reality is that everything about Jesus confronts Caesar, usually implicitly, but every once in a while, it's fairly explicit in the New Testament, mm-hmm. be it Acts or the epistles or, or even in Jesus, it's basically explicit. You know, when he says things like, uh, whose image is on that coin, you know? Yeah. Well, it's Caesar's. Well, give him his money back. Who cares? You give yeah. to God what's God's and you're the image of God. So go bear God's image. Go be the alternative. Screw what Caesar is. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. It's, it's pretty, it's, you know, we we don't catch all of those idiosyncrasies like you're, you're mentioning. And, and it's kind of like, no wonder the guy gets executed by the time he's like 33 years old. Like yeah. he's doing some things. It's not just because he came along one day and said, hey, I think I would like all of you to pray a prayer so that you can feel good about your relationship with God. By the way, I, I still believe in some of that, but like he's much more radical than you know, four laws or here's a step into faith. He's like, look, 
the whole way you orient your world changes when I'm at the center of that world. And, you know, I, I think that's something we've got to take extra care to wrestle with and communicate uh, during the 21st century, for sure. Yeah. In your Jesus Politics podcast, you were there's a few phrases that I wrote down as I was listening, because I'm like, I can't remember everything I wanted to talk to you about. But politics demands an enemy was one of the things that you said. And again, I think what you're thinking about is like electoral politics, like when we engage with governmental politics, there has to be some sort of enemy. I don't know if you want to elaborate a little bit more for, for my audience. Now they can go listen to it by all means. Yeah. Please go listen to it, listeners. Because <laughs> it's, yeah. it's a lot more to, to, to digest than this one conversation. Oh, yeah. No, I appreciate that. Um, yeah. And, and of course, right, that's where language gets sloppy and uh, loose at times. But I, yeah, absolutely. Here I'm thinking of the kind of politics that are power over, we might yeah. talk about, you know, in a bit. Yeah, politics demand an enemy because my foundational understanding of politics, you know, in this sense, from a biblical perspective would certainly start with this idea of shalom being God's vision for the world, right? Relationship mm -hmm. with God, self, others, and the created order. You get that in the Genesis accounts. You get that throughout the Hebrew scriptures and reinforced in the New Testament. And so this idea of living in a state of shalom as God's image bearers to the world is what we're supposed to do together. And whenever that's violated, we can either make proper restitution for it, or we um, find ourselves with a problem that needs some sort of fix. And mm -hmm. often, I would say politics, in, in the sense we're talking about right now, seeks to fix issues that are caused by shalom being disrupted, or another way of saying that, by sin, by alienation between those relational dynamics mm -hmm. that I, I mentioned. But of course, like at its worst, what happens is politics can really cause more alienation. It can actually cause more enemy making as I get to in the, the portion of the talk you're mentioning. And so, yes, I think that there is a, a level at which politics can demand of us that we make an other out of someone who is in our way of our agenda or ultimately who um, sees the world radically differently than we do. Mm -hmm. And I think as people shaped by Jesus, we, we want to avoid making enemies of any kind. And so um, live at peace is, with all people. That's right. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I think the, the libertarian impulse here in me is just like saying, but, but all politics is demanding an enemy. Like, because it's like inherently conflictual because it's all about, and, and this, I realize it's somewhat American for me to say, it's all about left versus right, or it's all about A versus B or this team, red team versus blue team versus sometimes green and purple teams. Right. And it's all about if we win, we get our way mm -hmm. or we can have a bigger say for our agenda. And I don't personally, Kurt, have a huge respect for the individuals who seek the kind of power that we've been seeing, at least especially in the last decade, and, and I would say much further back. I think it's very clear that Donald Trump was in this for himself. 
I think oh, he yeah. might have had a few smaller things that he was like, you know what, I, I think America needs me for this thing and I'm going to try to help it my way. And he might sort of have a whatever in it, but he was all about himself. He was, you know, in terms yeah. of his church, you know, support from the evangelicals, it was all about using them. I mean, oh, I'm, yeah. I've, it's like so obvious to me. And, and mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. I don't think that most people in Congress... I can't say this because I don't know them. So it's unfair on the one hand. On the other hand, I have a very hard time knowing that these people actually care about the people at large, but they mm-hmm. care about their programs and their agenda. And that in and of itself makes me not think of politics at its best where there's some sort of like, we're coming together to increase shalom and be reconciled to those whom we're yeah. against. Yeah. Like this is all power struggle. Like at least in the past four years, especially, but even... I would say even, and I, I'm not blaming Barack Obama, but like since that era, at least that's mm-hmm, what I'm remembering. Mm-hmm. That's when I started paying attention. It's like, uh, yeah, this is all about jockeying for power. Uh, this is all about, you know, stonewalling the other party because you've got 51%. It's all about, you know, making sure that they eat crow because you stop them or whatever. Like it just gets, yeah. oh my goodness, it just gets so messy. So I have very, I have a little less hope in in that sort of thing than you do maybe. Oh, well, look, I mean, at the end of the day, the only reason I even will hope is a strong word from my end, to be honest, Uh, damage control is the best I can say, Mm. where I think you and I might disagree on damage control methods. Like, I I think it's a bunch of crap. (laughs) That's the thing. Like, I I don't, um, I have zero interest in you know, lobbying for this candidate against that candidate, sure. um, you know, all of that kind of stuff. Because I do agree, at least in in general with your assessment, that most of it is jockeying for power. And I'm very uncomfortable with that. I have yet to find a candidate that embodies the all of my core values, to be honest with you. I've not mm. met one. So, the, you know, I, I don't put my hope in whatever the political philosophy in front of me is. That said, I, I do deeply care about damage control, and that's where it gets messy, I think. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I mean, honestly, I think that's why a lot of uh, former Trump voters decided not to vote for him this time, that it was, mm-hmm. it was, a, mm-hmm. it was a bridge too far or whatever. I mean, obviously, I can't yeah. know why exactly, but the power over versus power under thing just always resonates. I mean, you've read our book, so we've mentioned that through, through mm-hmm. there. It's like, if you're, if you're Christian you're not going to pursue as the solution or the, and and again, you can sort of make sometimes, you can sometimes make politicians or political agendas or movements your messiah, right? Mm. You can kind of make the movement, not like I know some people, you know, were accusing people on the left of thinking of Barack Obama as like the, you know, the next messiah for our country or whatever. And other people saw Trump that way, right? So, but like Mm -hmm. you can make movements that sort of solution. Oh, if we only get, criminal justice reform, everything will be solved. Or if we only get this. Now, those things are really important to do, but it's not the only part of the puzzle. There is that, like, I love what you talked about in your series with Shalom. It's like, there is Shalom to be pursuing here. It isn't just, you know, non, non-violence in and of itself. Like, the wholeness of relationships. And, and I think that, I mean, honestly, the one of the things I thought of this week with respect to the concept of divorce, I don't know if you've heard this before. I, it might have been like Richard Beck who said this, okay. who said something like, you know, one of the key attitudes of people who are going to probably divorce is that they have contempt for one another. Oh. 
It's not yeah. that they don't like one another. It's not that they're frustrated. It's not that they are disappointed, but it's contempt. As soon as you cross that yeah. line into you have some little bit of contempt for your spouse, you're, you're probably on the other side of that reconciliation divide. And I sort of feel that way with our country. Yeah. And, you know, on the one hand, that's lamentable. On the other hand, you know, there's nothing inherently sacred about 50 states and whatever province, you know, whatever extra things we have going on like Puerto Rico. But it is lamentable to be a Christian and look at so much division and also to see your brothers and sisters in Christ be somewhat part of it. Mm-hmm. I have a lot that I'm lamenting in my own private prayer. Uh, I think I think there's a lot of, just thinking about the church, a lot of reputation damage that we're going to have to really deal with when it comes to you know, hoping to see God's message being received by the next generation. Because what younger people are seeing is hypocrisy and talking around rhetoric that is just anti-Christian, whether you you lean left or right, like it's just anti-Christian, what we've heard out of the White House for the last four years. Um, And and to give your voters some context, um, I I voted for George W. Bush. I had an O a Bush 04 sticker on my car uh, the first year. I think that was the first time I could vote. I'm, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, that sure. was me too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, uh, so, no, wait. I was able to vote in the 2000 election. Yeah, yeah. So I was a junior during that election. So in high school. So yeah, so so I was all in on the Republican kind of um, conservative principles thing, you know? And it was a social justice thing that moved me towards saying, you know what? Like I'm against abortion, but... I feel like there's some progressive policies that may be helpful. And so I, I voted for Barack Obama, uh, not as a, yay, he's my, he's my guy, as much as better of two options at that point. And mm-hmm. then the following election, and this is kind of more my point, I actually didn't vote at all. And my reasoning was that I, I could no longer justify Barack Obama as being pro-life enough when I was trying to weigh out that kind of the scales, so to speak, of what I thought of, um, you know, you help poor folks, there's less abortions, however you might slice that is fine. Yeah, right. But um, that was my my logic at the time. Well, when you're bombing people with drones uh, without any sort of discrimination, I, I finally was just like, I can't, I can't do yeah. this. And, and I like the guy. I think he's a good dude. He seems commendable you know, in a lot of ways, you know? It's but funny I'm like, that... Ugh. Yeah. What's funny about your story is that I, I actually, if I were to go back, so in, let's see, it was 2008, right? So that was his his first candidacy. Yeah. So in 2012, I remember telling people, because at that point I had become anti-war by, mm-hmm. the, by then. Mm-hmm. Between, between Obama getting elected, it wasn't because of Obama, it was just because I was learning, you know, more, more politics, more economics, more reading my Bible, being more consistent. I was, I was anti-war then. Yeah, and I thought, yeah. oh my goodness, if I were anti-war four years ago, I would have voted for Barack Obama because he made all kinds of promises in that direction. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, but he mm-hmm. did not deliver. Right. And that was, and I'm like, okay, well, so anyway, it's just funny that that's kind of how you, that's why you mm-hmm. didn't vote for him the second time. And that was sort of my realization, even though I didn't vote for him the first time either. But um, yeah, 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 absolutely. And and I was, you know, there's nuances in that. You know, I yeah, was- sure. I lived in California, so what does my vote matter? You know, <laughs> some of that. But, um, but you know, at the end of the day, I people often say, how come you haven't been more critical of this now, you know, when it comes to borders or, or anything militaristic? And I've, I've often pointed back and said, no, actually, like, 
when I when I'm at least aware of something, I'll be critical of it if I have to be. You know, I also yeah. want to celebrate what's good, but yeah. So yeah, it's 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 a mess. I mean, honestly, it, it's why a do mess. people always want you to always have something to say vocally, like at all times? Uh, it, it, it's like, where yeah. were you when Obama was doing? I'm like, well, I was I, okay. I didn't say anything. I didn't write a blog about it, but like, I was still against it. <laughs> uh huh. Uh huh. Yeah. No. No. I, it's as much as social media makes podcasting, for instance, possible, and for me and well for you as well, like writing books and getting word out and these things, man, it is toxic. And that's another, that's a whole nother podcast, but it is not helping our situation um, when it comes to our political conversation and hospitality towards difference and these sorts of things. Yeah. So I want to, I'm sure our listeners are like, okay, when are they going to start disagreeing more? Maybe, I don't know. But I, I do want to make one more point here that I want to know if you noticed this too. The past, So you and I are recording on the day before Inauguration Day of, yeah. of Joe Biden. And the past week has been a whirlwind of events, a whirlwind of, well, the past two weeks, I should say, a, just a huge issue of like, mm-hmm. oh my goodness, what's going on in Washington? The I've, yeah. I have reports of friends who are flying back from wherever they've been to their homes in the Washington area, and the security at these airports is insane. Mm-hmm. They said they've never seen anything like it. It's a big deal. And I see that there is a lot of religious language around why people are dismayed at what happened. And, and there have been like, Public officials say things like, you know, that the Capitol is a sacred building. Oh, yeah. There are people who are acting like, they basically acted like the temple was violated, Mm -hmm, right? And mm -hmm. and I look at this and I'm like, okay, I understand that there's a lot of problems going on there. I think that there is a narrative being told that's a problem, makes some of it worse than it is. And I think some things have come to light over the, over over the last few weeks where it's, it was worse than we initially assumed in some ways and not as bad in others. So, of course, there's nuance there. But have you noticed that there's a lot of religious talk and language sort of reverence around the violations that happened? Oh, yeah. Yeah, and it doesn't surprise me, you know. And and part of the reason it doesn't surprise me is because there's religious talk around everything governmental with America. That That's just what it is. Uh, the American experiment is a religious experiment on so many levels. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, look at this, right? So people are saying our our sacred place was desecrated. And I'm just yeah. thinking to myself, um, sacred to who? Like, it's not sacred to yeah. me. Uh, it's it's yeah. a nice building. It's historic. I think it's cool. Like, I like visiting DC. It's fascinating. You know, I love that we have these beautiful preserved old buildings. I think it's amazing. But I do not feel more of the Holy Spirit when I step into one of those buildings. <laughs> you know, I I, yeah. I just, so I think it's for Christians. Now, now people who are like all in on the Jesus thing, calling anything like that sacred is sacrilege. And, and they mm-hmm. don't, many don't know it. And I wouldn't be like, you are an idolater. You know, I, I try not to be a, a finger pointer. I was when I was younger, I think a little more, but, but I try to say, hey, have you considered like even saluting the flag? That is an act of giving over your allegiance from something holy and beautiful, like, you know, the way of Jesus, Jesus himself to a philosophy of, um, you know, <laughs> militarism and all of the various things that make yeah. the United States what it is. Now, of course, we love American people, but my goodness, it is religious. And even tomorrow, and this was where I was headed, 
tomorrow, we're going to have an inauguration. That is so similar to, for folks in the high church, an ordination that it makes me sick. <laughs> mm. it, 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 is, it is like we are ordaining our president in a religion. I mean, it's so layered with religious overtones and the church has got to wake up and remember that our allegiance isn't in who's inaugurated. Our allegiance is in the inaugurated King, Jesus himself. So I'm going to like switch hard shift gears here. For Do just it. A few I just minutes. went on weird yeah, tangents. Yeah. I know. Yeah, I'm yeah. Sorry. No, no, no. It's all good. No, you went, you told, you said exactly, you said exactly what, um, like, sorry. That's not like, I'm like, I've set you up to say what I wanted you to say. Uh, <laughs> I get you. You're you, you, hoping you, I'd go that direction. Good yes, enough. that's yeah. right. That's good. Yeah. So I, I just kind of want to, maybe this isn't too much putting you on the spot, but like, so you read our book and yeah. you're kind of like, yeah, I'm with you most of the way, but like, were there any parts that like, you're like, eh, I don't know about that. Like, I just can't go there. Yeah. Yeah. So, so here's what I keep thinking. And um, you're, you're all educated, wise people, <laughs> the Libertarian Christian Institute. So I know you've thought about this more than I have probably sure. from your angle, right? But, but you know, the, the principle is it, um, is it, what's the acronym? N-A. Non-aggression principle. Yeah, yeah. N-A, yeah. Non-aggression principle. Yeah. In so many ways, I love that, right? I think, yeah, absolutely. Like, I am my own property. I have property. Others shouldn't violate my property. I, I get that. And I think when there's a transgression, again, that's could be looked at from my framework as a violation of shalom. You yeah, know, so there's yeah. a lot of ways where I'm like, I get why you go from a theological framework that is so similar to mine to then saying, so let's apply this in these ways. I, I think that is... Um, Honestly, I think it's brilliant, even if I'm not quite there. And where I'm not quite there is I kept wondering to myself, and I'm going to try and articulate this. I, I finished the back half of the book this morning, so it's still pretty fresh. I guess one of the things that kept coming up for me was, but not everyone is starting with the same history and plot of land. Mm -hmm. I, I guess that's maybe a, a metaphorical way of saying that's where I start to get very like, uh, like I, I'm with you, but I'm not. Like, like not if we had a level is, playing field, I could affirm all this. If 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 the playing field were level, I told a buddy this the other day, and he he laughed and he was like, eh, maybe. I was like, man, you figure out reparations for black and indigenous people, then maybe I'll go all in on the libertarian thing once we've settled that. <laughs> mm, okay. You know, because that that's where I keep coming back to, and I have other things I'll I can give as examples for my own life. But like on a foundational level, it's that impulse of saying there's not equity among people. And so people are kind of fixed with what they have. And, you know, had white folks treated black folks the, the appropriate human way they ought to have been treated for 400 years, well, then they would probably have proportionate to their population size, the same stake in ownership that most white people do. And mm. they just don't. Same for indigenous people who, if anyone has really property rights to claim, it's probably them, you know? And so, so that's where I go domestically. And then I think a, a mirroring sort of impulse of like, oh, I just can't get there is... Uh, you know, I'm not anti-free market, I don't think. But my impression, and I, I, I have a feeling you'll have some, some reasons why this might not be the case, but my impression 
is that although free markets through competition can create like goods and services that bring prices down for us here in the States, you know, and, and maybe that helps level the playing field in the poverty and social justice section. I, I got the impression that was part of the philosophy. Mm-hmm. And, and I respect that. Like I, again, I, I don't think this is a, you know, it doesn't make me feel uncomfortable, except that those goods and services are often dependent on foreign situations where that same sort of non-aggression isn't applied. And so we get sweatshops, we get slave labor, we get all of these things. And if we keep things so free that we just trust people and then the corporations they build up to do the right thing, even if it's helping us here at home, I don't know what that does in in Mm. the sense of the ongoing um, economic globalization and the imprint of the U.S., in that. And so those were like, man, oh, I, I get it, but I just can't, I can't imagine starting there unless we had a foundational baseline here domestically yeah. and other nations also had policies in place or whatever systems in place so that they wouldn't be exploited. Yeah. Well, that's, there's a, there's a number of things that come to mind and I'm not like, <laughs> I'll, I'll have to email you or, or provide yeah. resources on our page. But like, hey, here's yeah. kind of who I think has the better answer on this or, or whatever. But um, I, I will say this, the racial injustice and the, um, the first thing that you mentioned with like, we're not really on a level playing field. There's a history, especially in the United States. I've wrestled with that as well. And what I've personally come to is something very similar to Honestly, you might be the only person I've ever spoken to that might actually get the analogy without me trying to explain mm-hmm. it in depth. And sure. that is when we look at the Old Testament and we see laws that were that said eye for an eye, and we see that there is a trajectory in the Old Testament that says that goes away from violence, okay? That you see God working slowly to bring us to Jesus, right? There's that sort yeah. of trajectory in the right direction. I sort of see the way in which, and I don't think it's been handled perfectly. I think there's been a lot of mistakes made after slavery was was abolished in the United States and the way that we went about it. I mean, I think what, most every other nation abolished slavery without a war. Like there's something in our DNA that, you know, it's problematic on that level. Um, yeah, we like to but, fight. Oh, gosh. <laughs> I know. Michael Moore was right when he, on, with uh, with the Columbine, I forget the name of the, the uh, oh, yeah. for Columbine. It's like, it's not really the guns. It's the it's who we are and we have to reckon with that. Mm-hmm, and I think mm-hmm. that we are coming to a reckoning with that. My gut flinch reaction to okay, fine, if I'm if I accept that we need to do some sort of either reparations or adjustment of some kind, if I accept that, the people who are wanting that are wanting more than just that. They're not aiming for let's level the playing field. They're they're aiming for the power over to stick it to the white man or whatever, if you will. Mm. Like and and again, that's me attributing a little bit of malice or, or a little bit of like an agenda that may not be there, but it doesn't seem like I'm. It's I don't think those are groundless concerns. Now there are some places that I would go to be like, hey, here's some answers from libertarian perspective that would sort of deal with this or would would sort of critique how it's been dealt with and say, hey, this would have been a better deal for, for, yeah. for black people yeah. if we had done it this way. And it would have been a more libertarian deal if we had done it this way. With respect to global capitalism, might be helpful to think about it, the difference between like capitalism as a system 
that is dominated largely by the United States and the West, as mm-hmm. opposed to like freed markets or free, you know, some libertarians will go in like freed markets versus like, like they're actually free rather than like constrained by these rules that we call capitalism. Mm, yeah, um, and yeah. I just use the word free market capitalism because, you know, it, at the end of the day, I, you know, I don't think of America doing business with another country. I think of you and me, Kurt, buying goods and services uh, or usually goods from another individual uh, who lives in another country or even in our country, right? Like yeah, I, I think yeah. of it as a little more individualistically. With respect to like, Things like sweatshops, I know that, okay, I can't speak for every situation of a sweatshop, but largely what ends up happening there is that those things that we would call a sweatshop are actually the one step up, are the like sort of one level up of, okay, we were now all poor farmers. Like think of the Chinese 30 years ago. When you and I were a kid on TV, we would see poor people on TV and we would, you know, be asked to donate just the price of a cup of coffee a day. Yeah. You know, yeah. that's what I remember on the TV. Mm-hmm, so that's mm-hmm. like almost non-existent. And so like the people didn't line up to be in these like sort of sweatshops making computer components because it was worse off for them. It was because mm-hmm. they were... They were in the farm. They were like, those yeah. people are no longer poor. You and I can afford things that our parents couldn't. And, you know, I don't, you're a pastor. I don't know what you make, but it's probably <laughs> not a super high salary. Um, yeah, yeah. You're in yeah, Seattle, so maybe, maybe compared to other places. But like you and I are able to afford the technology to do what we're doing, right? right. We're able to right. like do certain, have certain luxuries in our life that my parents didn't have, that our parents may not have had. And that is because we have cheaper goods. And at the same time, and I honestly really, truly get like a physical reaction in a good way, like shivers or whatever you want to call it. Like I I actually get excited about the fact that there are millions of Chinese people who their conditions aren't as good as what we would find in America in terms of their working conditions. And there's a lot of work to do, uh, but they're no longer poor. Like hmm. as their parents were. And that, yeah. like, again, it's imperfect. Like whatever policy you might want to say, well, we should have this policy it's going to be imperfect. Well, that's going to be the same. I, I would want people to have the sort of the same allowance for the market to do its work over time. Hmm. And I don't think that's a blind faith in the market. Okay. And if it is, if people like sort of accuse us, libertarian Christians of being like, oh, you just have this blind faith in the market. Brian McLaren calls it a theopolitics mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. or theocapitalism is what he calls it. And mm. <laughs> it's like, there's this blind faith in the, in the invisible hand. And I would say this, what more would you expect from like the God who arranges the universe, you know, toward the green of love, as Brian Zahn would say, like, what else would you expect when willing people are coming together, trading and creating wealth with one another by, by doing something for one another in exchange? What else would you expect but better things? Maybe not a perfect outcome because there's more, always more than just two parties involved, but like we're getting better in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and so my sort of like hindsight, oh my goodness, look what we've done in the last 30 years. I mean, we our poverty rate has plummeted. Yeah. And there are now people saying that by 2050, we won't have what is called abject poverty anymore in the world hmm. because we'll get there. Because the, and yeah. So anyway, I could keep ranting yeah. and I, and yeah, no, I, I, it's I good. don't want to keep good. it too long, but. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but yeah, yeah. No, that's, that. I mean, I think all of those things are, are definitely worth considering. And um, I think this comes up in the book a little bit you know, sometimes libertarians are accused of having too much trust in people, mm, kind of yeah. too much faith in their goodness. And and I think, honestly, I still share a little of that. And this is for, not just for 
I want to say for you Christians- You a little concerned that we might do that? Well, yeah. Yeah, I yeah, just, okay. you know, the simplistic way these things have been outlined in the past are like, you know, um, these things are the role of the church, not the role of the state or however you want right. to like frame that conversation. You all are much more nuanced than that in my opinion, but- but that's kind of like the rhetoric that's out there. And then it's, right. well, the church can't possibly handle this kind of a load. It's, you know, and I think, anyway, I, I think oh, you do yeah, a yeah. good job of addressing some of those things. Um, but I think, I think where I'm going is just simply to say that, um, you know, fundamentally, I, I'm like, yeah, I, I could see how free, freed markets could really do lots of good. And I assume they have. And it's not like I have a, a deep philosophy on, no, I think uh, we need to close down capitalism. I, I honestly think that'd probably be bad. Um, yeah. I, just, I just think it needs to be a regulated thing, at least at this point in my journey. Um, so, so yeah, but I think what you're saying makes a lot of sense and I want to continue to hold those things as possible. Um, can I, can I cut to one other, I think big difference oh, yeah, sure. that I, I got from the book? Cause I know we're, we're getting close on time here. Um, I think the other big thing is the immediacy of the solutions, you know, that also, I think is something that, um, you all address in some ways, but I, I find myself still not in a place where I can affirm, like these ideas will eventually lead to competition that eventually leads to more justice and these things. And mm -hmm. I, I'm like, okay, that as a political philosophy, maybe that's actually right, but what's gonna help the person who's struggling tomorrow? Yeah. You know, and that's my other issue. So, so maybe that's more pragmatic than it is philosophical. Like, and that's where I wonder if, where my gap comes in again, it's much more on the pragmatic here and now, what will alleviate the most suffering for the person who's suffering in this moment? And then what will prevent that suffering in the future? Well, maybe the libertarian idea is the answer to that future thing, but I'm curious, yeah. I become very curious about the now. And I put myself into this just to say, I was that kid on welfare and food stamps and mm. in an abusive household. And I'll tell you what, without the safety net that came with uh, that, you know, the the welfare in California, Section 8 housing, all that stuff, man, I am not the same human being. Yeah. I would have had a much darker childhood, a much more, and, and at best would have been pulled out of the home, but to where? You know, at least I had some semblance of stability so that when mm -hmm. the opportunities to pull up my bootstraps, which I eventually did get those opportunities, right? When those actually came, I had less trauma to unpack as a result so that I could be a productive giving member of society as an adult and all of that. And so, yeah. so I guess there's some of those personal strings that I'm just like, man, the immediacy of the challenges, especially for children. And yeah, it's not, yeah. it's not easy. It's not easy. I totally get that. And in fact, it's, it's one of the things that allows me to personally, I'm going to lose my libertarian Christian uh -oh. card here for a second. It's one of the reasons why I sometimes am like, all right, let's let's do that trade of like let's let's have some sort of safety net for the for the truly destitute. And and I've actually made this joke before. I don't think we've put this in the book, but I made this joke about it. Look, if what you want is the government to make sure that no one is ever truly poor and that we have roads, I'm in. Yeah. Like if that's really what the government's about, 
like just making sure that there's like that last safety net so that, you know, Kurt as a boy doesn't go hungry and wonder what is going on with the people around him that they don't support him in some sort of like camaraderie way, like whatever it is. Like, yeah, yeah. You, you can't say to the person who's on the street and struggling, you can't say the single mom who is struggling to feed her kids, like, look, if you just believe in capitalism, more free markets, like your kids are going to have better opportunities than you. Yeah, <laughs> like yeah, that's yeah. Not, no, that's it not doesn't very work. loving either. <laughs> that that may be true. It is true. I believe it's true. But that sure. doesn't. That you're right. The immediacy of it, and and I think that's where like the practical, like okay, what sort of compromises can we make now? And I would say to close this out really rapidly, and oh, you this and I can is talk so fun. Eventually, yeah. Yeah. is that the more local, uh, the less empire it is. So like, oh, if my local uh-huh. county is is what most libertarians would call overbearing or whatever. That's very different from a Biden or Trump or Obama or whomever administration Mm -hmm. or Congress, just generally. Like the idea that under like five, six hundred people get to get to sort of decide how the entire, you know, 350 million of us, you know, live or, or, you know, kind of what rules is kind of like, uh, no, we need people who are. So the subsidiarity that is a Mm -hmm. sort of as a very Catholic principle. (laughs) A social, yeah, Catholic social yeah. principle. That's really important to me too. It's like, hey, um, and and I think for for the most part, the welfare system in the United States has gone more toward that than anything. Mm-hmm. And I've learned a lot about the welfare system that was like there were a lot of myths that I believed about it. So I'm not personally, and I, and I think at the end of the day, when you're having a conversation with a, a heartfelt libertarian, they're going to say, okay, yeah, so for the short term, but um, eventually we we have to get to the point where um, the only reason people are poor is because they've chosen to be rather than yeah. just, you know, luck or, or, or mm. bad luck, I should say, or whatever. So anyway, I'm, I'm going to give you a minute here to uh, tell the, uh, our listeners about your new book coming out and then yeah. uh, where can they find you online? Yeah, no, that's great. And by the way, um, I haven't told my dad yet that I was on this podcast, but I'm pretty sure he's going to be proud of me because he's a libertarian, pretty sure. <laughs> so, <laughs> Oh man, that's great. <laughs> so I'll, I'll send him this. He'll get a kick out of it. So yeah, I do have um, a few things you can check out online. Of course, my um, website is theologycurator.com. And there you can find links to my podcast and some of my articles. My newsletter is there. And that's definitely my home base uh, beyond the podcast. So you can sign up for the newsletter. And then the book is called Echoing Hope, How the Humanity of Jesus Redeems Our Pain. And it's a book that looks at Jesus as the model for what it looks like to become fully human and what that looks like in the raw realities of life. I share, like I alluded to earlier, I share a lot about my story. I wasn't planning on being as vulnerable and open with my story as I actually ended up being in the book, but yep, there it's all there. So yeah, awesome. um, and it's going to be in the world on March 16th. But ultimately what I do is I, I spend the first part of the book framing the problem of evil and suffering and our pain. Um, and then the rest of the book from Jesus's birth to his resurrection, I frame out some of the things we learn from the life of Jesus and the teachings of Jesus that help us become more human in the way that he is human. So, um, and that can be freeing for folks who have experienced pain and suffering, which I'm pretty sure is all of us. Well, I am looking forward to reading it and we're going to have you back on to talk about it. And uh, thanks, Kurt, so much for an awesome conversation. I hope we do this again. Oh, absolutely. This was so fun. I really, really appreciate it. All right. Thanks. 
Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. If you'd like to find out more about LCI, visit us on the web at libertarianchristians.com. The voiceovers are by Matt Bellis and Catherine Williams. As of episode 115, our audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com. Thank you.